This is Back to Excitement with your hosts, Arvind and Acting the Fool from Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 136. My name is Arvind. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Fooleman? I am good. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Uh, yeah, can't really complain. Uh, things going decently around here, and, and the Leafs are helping by getting through kind of their first real bout of adversity this season in, in, in the form of, you know, some extended poor results. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they got out of it with a, with a gritty win against Ottawa in overtime, and then they followed up with another overtime win against the Oilers uh, yes. last night in a, in a sterling comeback, which is always fun. Yeah, yeah. So we're in a more positive frame of mind than we would have been had we done a podcast last week. We actually had to take the week off, or mm-hmm. I did because I was studying for a professional services exam. And so we missed out on some of the goalie discourse, which I think is fine. <laughs> yeah, frankly, I, th- I think it's best for, it's good for both of us that, you know, <laughs> that's, that's the one we missed. Yeah. Uh, goalie discourse is never, is never particularly fun. Yeah. But we will cover it a little bit today, actually, because mm-hmm. we figured now was as good a time as any to do some report cards. Everybody loves grades. Exactly. Uh, I mean, that's that's the whole reason you're taking exams. It's just to be graded. There's no actual benefit. It's, it's just, we, you know, you enjoy grading and being graded so much. Everyone's Lisa Simpson at heart. So, yeah, so we went through the whole lineup as it stood on Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went through it in the order when I took notes of it on Friday. So if it seems a little weird how I've chosen to organize it, blame Sheldon Keefe. Uh, this is what he was doing at some point, and of course, being Sheldon Keefe, he threw them all in a blender several times in the course of last night. But we will get to, I think, every significant player, mm-hmm. and we will uh, talk about Sheldon Keefe himself. So there's, yes. yeah, lots to cover. So here. this is, I guess, not quite um, halfway grades. This is like 60% grades. We, we, we are thorough. We want to wait the extra 10% to be really sure about our grades. That's called sample size. Rookie podcasters would just say, hey, when's half the season, and then do that. But no, not us. That's, so. that's the quality you pay for. <laughs> We're back to excited. Yes. Uh, so, um, speaking of quality we pay for, mm. let's start with Austin Matthews. Yeah, I gave him an A+. Plus. Uh, I gave him an A. So, uh, yeah, just I think there's not actually that much to discuss here, so just go for it. <laughs> yeah, so he's cooled off a little bit lately, production-wise. That seems obviously connected to the fact that he has an injury on his top wrist uh, that might have taken a bit off his shot, although his shot seems to be coming back lately. It's just he's dinging posts pretty much all the time. But he would be contending very seriously for the Hart Trophy if Connor McDavid didn't exist. His, yeah, McDavid's yeah. had just a bonkers season, like maybe one of his best, <laughs> uh, which is saying a lot because McDavid's had, you know, a handful of really, really good seasons. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in a world where, you know, that isn't happening, Matthew, Matthew's season so far is absolutely on level with a lot of Hart Trophy winners that we've seen. Yeah, absolutely. I know that at the start of this season, uh, people I know, Dom Lachishan was one of them, talked about how maybe the gap between Connor McDavid and Austin Matthews and Nathan McKinnon was narrower than it was in the popular discourse. And I actually still think that was a defensible take based on what was going on at the time. I think that made sense. Since then, Connor McDavid has, I think, separated himself again. It has to be acknowledged. He's been unbelievable. And he's reestablished himself as the best player in the world. 
and the <laughs> Hart Trophy frontrunner, it's fine. Austin Matthews has a very credible claim to being the second best. I really believe that. Yep, I I 100% agree. And um, really, we, we've said this before, but Austin Matthews is our ticket as a franchise to relevancy. Yes. Yeah, all the stuff that we went through over and over and over again for the the dark period between 2005 and 2015. The reason that this is just a fundamentally different situation every year is first and foremost Austin Matthews. Just the There's a level of credibility as a franchise that we have that starts with him. Um, and I do just want to notice what a complete player he's becoming. I remember when he was coming into the league, his, de- his defensive game was really touted. And people mm. were talking about him as sort of an Anze Kopitar type. And you wrote a very prescient article saying, hey, don't sleep on him as an offensive player. He's really, really good at it, and that's going to be his calling card. And that's been the case. Yeah, that was uh, the rare rare article of mine that was immediately um, immediately made me look smart. <laughs> right? And, and But it, it's something that, that made a lot of sense when, when you dug deep into it. His point scoring uh, in like the USN DTP was on par with like Patrick Kane and Phil Kessel and people like that. Mm-hmm. Right? Like he, he's always been a really good offensive player and a really interesting offensive player as a center that he's always been a goals greater than assists guy, more or less. Yeah, which is not that common. I remember early on in his career, we were looking at how many centers are there that consistently have more goals than assists. And Jeff Carter was the standout one. And then some years, Steven Stamkos, but he's gone the other direction in his recent career. So, yeah, he's a very unique player. But I think the dream of Austin Matthews was always that he could credibly contend for both the Rocket Richard and the Selkie in the same year, which to my knowledge, no one has ever done. And I don't think he's quite at that level, but his two-way game has really improved, especially yeah, to my eye. You know, the, the on-ice numbers are just really, really, really good. 54% Corsi, 55% goals for percentage, 59% expected goals percentage. Like, he's winning his minutes handily, and... You know, you can see if you've watched any Leafs game, he's not getting babied. He's playing a lot of minutes, and he's playing them against stars. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, yeah, sorry, yeah. that overtime goal last night, not last night, um, on Thursday night against Ottawa, um, he didn't actually get the goal, but he turned back a three-on-one in overtime, um, danced all the way back up the ice, and started the play that ended with Justin Hall hitting the game winner. Yeah, and... quick, um, quick sidebar, that was a brain-dead play by Thomas Shabbat. It's yeah. a three-on-one. Skate the puck up the ice. Maybe he was tired. He played like 45 minutes that game. Yeah, they do overplay but, him. Yeah. But like, it's, it's a three-on-one. Like, why are you... It was just such a, a low-risk pass. Or, or sorry, such a low-reward pass as well. Because like, it, it was in Matthews' general direction. It mm. wasn't that far up the ice. It was more lateral than anything. And it's, uh, it was just a really, really dumb decision. It was like... It's, almost on par with the time Zaitsev dumped the puck out of the zone in a three-on-three. Yeah, just with the entirely wrong instincts for the play state. Yeah, and so I think, you know, it has to be acknowledged. (laughs) If you're coming at that from the angle of a Sens fan, you're saying Austin Matthews, whatever, that was very dumb by our player. Mm. And, you know, I don't know if Shabbat was just trying to get it to the forward so they could run the play or what. But, yeah, I still think he's made plays like that, Austin Matthews, in terms of his ability to read the play, get ahead of it. And there was a period in his career where I was seeing him kind of arrive a split second late defensively, where he doesn't quite seem to be getting it done. 
in terms of completing those kind of plays, and he's just doing it more often. And I do think Sheldon Keefe's system suits him better, probably, than mm-hmm. Babcock's did. So, yeah, anyway, I've, I've probably waxed poetic enough. But do you have anything to say in addition to that? No, I mean, it, it's, it's Austin Matthews. He's our best player. He's, as we said, our ticket to, you know, being a relevant team going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, we need him. He's been amazing. I give him an A. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, an A-plus is absolutely fine with me. Uh, he's, he's been everything you could ask for. Yeah. And uh, praise the Lord that we have him. So next <laughs> up, Mitchell Marner, man about town. Um, I gave him an A. I gave him an A-minus. You see, you can tell that I came from, like, an English major program and you came from math because I'm a, I'm a little more generous. I always give him that extra. <laughs> <laughs> you tried and did a poem. Uh, yeah. yeah. So... I think, I, I, you know, go ahead. Again, I think there's not too much to say. Mm. He, he's he's the Robin to Matthew's Batman, which I'm sure will make kind of him and, if, if, he, if he listens to this podcast, will make him and his father kind of angry because I, I 100% believe that he believes he's on par with Austin Matthews, mm. which he should believe. You know, he's a pro athlete. Yeah. Right? Confidence and arrogance really is the, name, is the name of the game. You don't get to where, to that level without having, you know, a bit of an ego, mm-hmm. to, to be honest. Um. But yeah, like, I think he, he is a very, very good player. He's clearly not quite as good as Matthews, and part of that is just because of his skill set, right? Like, Marner, I think even now, might have a higher point rate than Matthews, and because they're on the same line, of course, their on-ice numbers are, you know, incredibly similar. Um, but Matthews does what I think, I think, and what most people think, is the harder part, which is scoring goals, mm-hmm. right? That's the hardest thing to do in hockey. He plays the more valuable uh, position. Marner does have a lot of PK utility, Um but, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's one of those weird things where everyone kind of just agrees, yeah, Matthews is better. Yeah. And once we accept that, we can appreciate Mitch Marner for what he is, which is awesome. Yes, exactly. I, yeah. There's something that you've talked about in the past, that the quintessential Marner game is the one where he doesn't do all that much visually for long stretches. And then you look at the end and he has two or three points. And I do think that that's as much a feature as a bug because... A player like Marner, who is still pretty slight, but is exceptionally agile and has great vision, part of the utility of him is that he knows when to sort of fade away from the danger areas and when to sneak back in. So it's not so much that he's fighting for territory, um, because physically he may not be equipped to do that against some hulking defensemen. It's that he knows when to slip away, when to slip back in. And as much as your eye as a viewer might lose him, I think that also has some effect on defenders losing him. And so that's part of what he does. And, and so I do... That's something that I've thought about with my eye test and Mitch Marner sometimes, which is why doesn't he seem to always be as dazzling despite good stats, despite great production. And I do think that some of that is just his ability to uh, to disappear when it suits him. Mm-hmm. The The stuff about his... Mitch Marner now being, you know, a more of a shooting threat is slightly overblown. Mm. He, his shot rate is, is not tremendously different. It's actually lower than each of his first three years um, for the Leafs. Mm. But he has his highest expected goals rate, individual expected goals rate, uh, since his, uh, or going back to, you know, his entire career. His, the second highest was actually his rookie year. Mm-hmm. So he's taking shots from better locations. Um, it's unclear if that is him trying to be a bit more shoot first there, if it's just that the Leafs with him and Matthews are getting into those positions more. So he's just, you know, taking shots from better locations because they're more available. Um, but 
you know, he's never going to be a crazy good shooting threat. And I think we'll, we'll get to this later, maybe with, with Nylander, but I think <clears throat> people underrate how difficult it is to add skills at this level. And we'll get, we'll certainly get to this with Hyman mm-hmm. where there's like a, a lot of people I've seen, you know, on PPP comments or Twitter uh, comments, or not Twitter comments, Twitter tweets or like Reddit comments are like, Oh, if, if Mitch Marner, you know, spent a summer working on a shot, he would basically be Patrick Kane. And it's like, it's not always possible for people to add a plus NHL shot, whether it's just physically or, you know, they just don't have the, the coordination for it. They don't have, um, you know, even the equipment for it. Maybe they need a really whippy stick to do that, but that would detract from their game in other ways, right? People have tried to play with Phil Kessel stick and been like, I cannot use that. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's, it's absurd. It's like a pool noodle. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. So, you know, there's trade-offs there. Not everyone can be a complete offensive player. And... that's fine because what Mitch Marner does is very hard to do. He does it better than almost anyone in the league. And, you know, we should appreciate that. He's a really good player. He fits well with, um, with Austin Matthews specifically. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that's a pairing that I imagine we're going to see together basically for the next, you know, however long they're both in Toronto. Yeah. Uh, they seem to like playing together. They like each other. Obviously they're good friends and it works. So you add all that together and there's really, not much else to say. It's good, and we're, I'm glad we have them both. Mm-hmm. Um, um, similar to, I just want to add, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. because you know we're contractually obligated to discuss Marner's contract whenever we discuss him. <laughs> um, it's quite similar to Dreisaitl in the sense that he's played well enough, and he is good enough that you're no longer really that annoyed about the contract, even though the contract remains something that, you know, when, when you're completely honest, like, yeah, we probably should have done a bit better there. Yeah. Like, it's too much money relative to the market. He's also amazing. And so I, as much as I've complained about it, and I don't retract anything I've complained about on that contract, because the fair comparison is to his peers at the time he signed, uh, the fact is he's amazing. And so we can probably move past that and just say, okay, it is what it is. We have it. We have a great player. Yep. Uh, Next up is Wayne Simmons, uh, which, again, this is where you're starting to see that the lines were kind of weird at the time that I did this. (laughs) <laughs> and laying out the notes for us. Uh, I gave him a B plus. I also gave him a B plus, and it's one I feel a little bit bad about. I feel like I should have given him a bit lower. Mm. Interesting, because he didn't um, have the greatest game last night. Well, yeah, he, he hasn't. He hasn't been that good since he came back from injury. Mm. And but the thing is, like, the Simmons we've seen the last couple games is the Simmons I feared we were getting mm. when we signed him. I, I wrote. I don't think I wrote an article about it, but I had a long Twitter thread about it. Where I'm like. I don't really get this signing because Simmons for the past few years has not really been a good player. Now it was heavily reported that he was playing, you know, very, very injured and the long layoff gave him time, gave him and his body time to recover. And he was reasonable enough for the first, um, like for the, basically his time until the first injury. I think he's been about a middling forward and that's a market improvement on his play in prior years. And if you're paying $1.5 million for a middling forward, you know, maybe you would get that cheaper um, because there's always, you know, there's such a thin bar between middling and these, you know, quad uh, A, the quad A guys. But, you know, that's, that's not that's not really hurting you. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like his fit on the top lines. That's the thing. I think, yeah, that, I think that's very fair. Um, and you've remarked on this and it's something that I um, maybe was in denial about, frankly, because I like Wayne Simmons, but the passing is not great. No, he really can't pass at all. And he's never been a great passer, right? Like he, the That's way he's, he's provided for. value 
I, I've studied Simmons kind of fairly closely for a couple of years now because there was so all this talk about him being traded here by Pierre Lebrun, although he liked to fit in Tampa more. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he, even in his prime, he didn't really help teams through his passing. He's, he he helped them through basically his ability to drive play, through winning a lot of board battles and his, uh, you know, incredible tenacity and doggedness on, on four checks. And then his skill in tight to take a lot of shots uh, from close range, from good positions, and to score a lot of those shots, right? And create value through rebounds and through, you know, putting goals in himself and, of course, being very strong on the power play. He's never really been a great passer, but as the rest of his game has declined, that flaw is more exacerbated. And I feel like in a system like the Leafs, which is so movement-based in the offensive zone, you really want everyone to be a decent passer. Mm-hmm. You could draw a contrast between that and Joe Thornton, mm-hmm. who is much older than Wayne Simmons at this point but still has that plus-plus passing, and so is maybe a bit better of a fit. Now, that said, I did think that Nylander, Tavares, and Simmons was working well before the injury. and Yeah, I, but it was, like, it was like two games, right? That's the thing. Yeah. It, it, it's a, it, part of the... We get, we've gotten a lot of different looks at you know various um, third guys on these top lines, but it's always been in, in such short spurts and in such unequal competition because of the, the way the season is playing out. Mm-hmm. That it's really hard to take anything at face value from the data alone. You really have to trust your eye test here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my eye test likes him a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I like him a lot. The eye test is obviously biased because he brings a solid effort. He still has those short-range puck skills. And every now and then, he gets an opportunity to show them. Where he shows yeah. patience at short-range. The game he was injured, I remember he had a goal where he was alone in front of the net. And my instinct definitely would have been jam that thing in as best you can. And I think a lot of players, even in the NHL level, were obviously a lot better and more experienced than I ever was, uh, would have had the same instinct. And yet he knew to wait just long enough not to blow the opportunity, but to get an opening to then roof the bucket on the net. Yeah, that was, that, was a, that was a pretty goal. It was nice. And so you can still see that there are elements of his game that are good. There are skills that he's got that haven't faded. And I do still think that we have a place for that. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it's looked like it could be in the middle six at times and not be bad, that's probably more, as you say, than he looked like he had in him at this point after a couple of down years. Yeah. I'm hoping that he can get back to that. Me too. The other thing is I, I guess two points. I don't want to hold Keith's mad scientist thing against Simmons. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not his fault if he's, you know, really, if he's overplayed a bit. And it's, again, it's, he hasn't been awful in playing with higher, playing with, you know, higher end line mates and higher end lines. I, I just don't love the fit there because of his uh, limitations as a passer. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I think if, in my ultimate version of the Leafs, he's on the fourth line and he's amazing at it. And they just absolutely you know, he, crushing competition. Yeah, he's he's a, he's a value add there for sure. <clears throat> the other thing I'd say is, um, you know, the power play is cooled down, but Simmons does provide uh, another set of skills we can use on the power play, right? Like you can uh, you can build not build something around it, but he, he can be part of a good power play, right? And and he doesn't take anything off the table, uh, and he brings stuff to it. Mm-hmm. So that's that's worth noting. The last thing I want to say is, you know, to whatever extent you believe in intangibles, um, Wayne Simmons brings them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we obviously from the outside can't see that, but uh, 
you know, by all accounts, Simmons is a great teammate, someone everyone loves. You saw that celebration with uh, Zach Hyman uh, after after Hyman scored. I forget who that was against. Um, and yeah, like you know, everyone seems to love Wayne Simmons. Mm-hmm. He's uh, a GTA guy, one of the few uh, black NHL players, and I think something that doesn't get enough discussion is how black NHL players are often kind of pigeonholed into these like toughness roles and it, it's very that's a very consistent thing with how black athletes are often described and fetishized mm-hmm. um as, as brutes in, in in a sense and it, it has you know a racist underpinning yeah Simmons they're not and, given and, enough credit for their brains for their creativity yeah. for all the for other elements of their game that that yeah. Wayne Simmons also has you know like exactly yeah. and, and Simmons and, and Jerome McGinley as well to mm-hmm, a higher extent mm-hmm. of course but these were these are black players who uh, in certainly in recent times, have kind of transcended that um, very kind of generic stereotyping because they're too good and too skilled to deny that they have, you know, those really high-level NHL abilities, mm-hmm. right? And it, it's it's really cool to have that. You know, Omar uh, on, on the site wrote a really great piece about how much Wayne Simmons means to him as a black fan of the Leafs. And the fact that we have him, that is really, really cool, and that does matter. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even aside from the play, I, I do want to point that out about Simmons. Yeah, I think that's that's valid. There was one other thing that I wanted to note. Uh, Justin Bourne uh, writes for Sportsnet. Uh, we, we've talked about him several times on this podcast. Obviously, I think he's a he's a pretty sharp analyst. And one of the things that he talked about with the Leafs was that they don't always have guys who go to the crease and fight for real estate, who get into the high danger areas and just are willing to get into a shoving match there. And I've actually seen John Tavares do it. And part of his utility is that he can hold upright while doing that. But Wayne Simmons is a guy who can do that par excellence. And it's not just willingness to go in there and be tough. It's go in there, be tough, and stay effective. Stay engaged in the play so that when the puck does come there, you're able to do something with it. Obviously, Wayne Simmons is not doing that at a level that he was four or five years ago when he was one of the best in the league at it. But there's still an element of that into in his game. And it's one that the Leafs really lack. And, and so, you know, if we've talked uh, in the past about who would you like to add at the trade deadline? And there have been so many names of forwards floating around. I kind of expected we might have traded for one by this episode, but we haven't yet. But the dream would be to get Wayne Simmons five years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> He would he, be such and, a perfect well, and, fit. And that's why... That's why fans have kind of lusted after him for so long, because he, he, he was the guy on the ice that the Leafs seemed to lack for, for mm-hmm. so much time. Yeah, and you can see why people are so excited to still have some of what he brings, even if it's not what he once brought, you know, Father Time is undefeated. So still, I, I think that our expectations of him were pretty cautious after two really rough down years, and that's why we ended up at B-pluses. We're hopeful that he can clip along at that third line level that, mm-hmm. that he showed earlier in the season. And if we do that, it's it's a good contract and we can, you know, en- enjoy everything that he brings to the team. Yeah. Uh, John Tavares. Uh, I gave him a B minus. So uh, this is going to be my first adjustment of the pod because I, I gave him a C plus, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm adjusting it upwards now. And, and uh-huh. it's only 90, it's only 95 percent due to his game yesterday. <laughs> definitely not a prisoner of the moment here um yeah it it i think a b minus is fair so do you mind if i uh, go through absolutely it? go for it <clears throat> so 
Okay, I think there's there's been a lot of talk about Taveras and some concern, and I would agree to some extent with that kind of concern. But it's important to look at this in a balanced way, and let's start with the good. All right, the fact is Taveras has a 58% goals for percentage, or sorry, a fixed 58%, um, I wrote this down in my notes wrong, I believe it's a 58% uh, expected goals percentage. Oh, no, no, sorry, I'm wrong. Sorry, it's... Updated after the numbers yesterday. Let me let me actually do this properly. A 61% goals for percentage, a 56% expected goals percentage, and a 53% Corsi for percentage. Yeah. Um, Short summary, all really good. All really good. <laughs> he's, he's not getting sheltered in any meaningful way. I'm sorry, I butchered the explanation of that because my notes were, were messy. Uh, he's not getting sheltered in any meaningful way. He plays tough competition. Uh, and he you can see he's generally trusted by Keith, perhaps not enough, and we'll, we'll get to that later. But... You know, however you look at it, he is handily winning his minutes in essentially any measure we look at, right? He and Nylander together, they are a complete luxury as a second line. Teams do not have John Tavares and William Nylander on their second line. Mm -hmm. Teams are also not paying their second line that much money usually, right? I mean, we're getting what we're paid for. Mm -hmm. um, the point totals aren't that pretty, right? That, that's the thing. That's really what it comes down to. But when you look at it, he's at about four goals under expected. And we really shouldn't expect that to continue to the degree that it has. Now, the, the bad is, is a little more tenuous, actually. It, it, it's, it's that at times he's looking really slow and ineffective, right? Mm. At times you, it looks like you can, it looks like, you know, he, there's situations where the Taveras of two years ago, is, it, you know, makes a better play. And mm. at the start of the year, there were, I think, some awkward moments with him and, and Nylander where they just didn't seem to quite click. And maybe that's a result of... Um, you know, just some bad luck, or maybe it was the result of Nylander playing a lot more left wing there. Um, with Nylander and Gauchenyuk there, it, it is quite um, fluid, right? And now they have a third guy to bounce off of who has, you know, pretty good puck skill himself. Um, but really, when you, when you look at his numbers, the only thing that looks kind of outlandishly poor is the shooting percentage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we know how that can vary. That said, when you are paying a guy $11 million, you're paying him that because he's a good finisher. Right. Right? You, you can't, on one hand, this is something I say a lot, where you can't, on one hand, say, oh, we have great finishers, and that's a part of our skill. And then when you're not finishing, say, oh, it's all luck. Mm -hmm. Right? Those are inconsistent. So, you know, I think it's fair to ding him a bit for, for the low shooting percentage. Right. But on the whole, he's still been good. Yeah, and I think that that's easy to get lost um, I think that a lot of opinions in Leafs Nation, people just struggle to hold, like, a moderate take on any topic. <laughs> you, you know, like, either he's great and we've destroyed the Islanders franchise by taking him away from them, and now it's swung over to, oh my god, his contract is an albatross, whatever shall we do? Look at the Islanders who are, I, I regret to report, really, really good. But... The real answer is in the middle, which is that I think he's lost a little bit from his peak. But when I looked at this, his point rate was down about 10% from last year. And some of that is shooting percentage. And, you know, last night he put one in the net, so it's probably actually a little better now. And if you told me that John Tavares had basically lost maybe 5% off his peak or something like that, that's about where I would gauge it. He's still really, really good. He can still form a legitimate first line on plenty of teams in the NHL. 
and like a combination of random guy, Tavares and Nylander, which is actually what we're doing, but um, a combination of random guy, Tavares and Nylander is a good first line full stop still. And the numbers bear that out. Right. Like I, Again, you, uh, you know, it's worth kind of saying this explicitly. The point of hockey is to outscore your opposition. Mm-hmm. John Tavares is doing that and he's doing that in a way that um, does not seem to be particularly dependent on shooting percentages. Mm-hmm. Right? He, he's, the Leafs are getting more chances with him on the ice. They're getting more shots with him on the ice. They're getting more expected goals with him on the ice. That, that's ultimately what matters. So yeah, when you get to the bottom line there, he's still succeeding. He's not dominant to the level that I think people hope for with capital J, capital T, John Tavares. And we know he cost $11 million. The reality is, he was an unrestricted free agent, one of the biggest in NHL history. And we were always going to have to overpay to get him. For a player of his caliber, you accept one that you're going to pay more than he's probably worth in some rational actor situation. And two, he is going to decline with age. Is he declining with age? Yes. But I do not think that it's at the point where it's any kind of crisis. Do I wish we'd capitalized on the first year we had him when it looked like we had a real chance to do something? And You know, yeah. But I still think that John Tavares can be a major contributor to this team, to a very good Leafs team. And... I don't think this contract is really going to get ugly until years probably six or seven, at which point, yeah, that's going to be tough, but that's kind of how it is. So, you know, mm-hmm. he's not perfect, and I think the B-minus reflects we hope for a little more out of him, but especially once his shooting regresses in the direction of normal, which I expect that it will, it's not going to be too much of a problem. Yeah, we should have met. I forget if we mentioned this, but we're doing this with the average being B. Right. Yeah. Relative to the player's expectations, mm-hmm. right? So, if, you know, what we're saying essentially is that John Tavares has been slightly under expect under what we expected, but at least for me, that's mostly based on his shooting percentage. Yeah, and so obviously we're holding John Tavares to a fairly high standard here. Yes, um, very much so. Um, the other thing I'd say is I think Tavares suffers a bit in comparison to Austin Matthews, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, one, one guy's playing like the second best player in the world. One guy's playing like a, a good first-line center who is in a shooting slump. Yeah, and so the bar is very high there. And I know some people think, some people lament the loss of Nazem Kadri, and I get that. That trade stings. It's, it's tough. But at the same time, I think that sometimes people lose the thread a little bit on that, on the value that John Tavares still brings and has brought. So, yeah. Um, ready to move to Nylander? I am. I'm always ready to talk <laughs> about William Nylander. Uh, yeah, I give him a B. He met expectations for me on that. Yeah, I think I, I give him a B plus. I believe um, I'd be fine with a B. The reality is, is that he started slow, and then he searched through a period where he might have been the best forward on the team, and on average, that added up to William Nylander. And so. Mm-hmm. I think that he basically has met expectations. He's a a terrific transition player. He's very good at everything offensively, with maybe one exception, and you pointed this out last night, which is that he doesn't always seem to have a plus one-timer. Like, he seems to need an extra second to corral the puck. So his release is maybe a bit heavier. 
but that's kind of nitpicking because he's very good at pretty much everything else. He can shoot, he can pass, he can deke, he can button hook, he can do it all. And so I think that while some people are always going to be frustrated with him because they always think that he can do more than he does, he's going to be a 60-70 point player who drives play and is part of effective lines that win their minutes. He's exactly doing that again. So here we are. Yes. Yeah. Yep, pretty much. Um, again, I think Nenander suffers in comparison to Mitch Marner, mm. right? Because, you know, we have one of the world's best right-wingers playing ahead of him. Leafs fans, I think, sometimes get spoiled, and they don't realize that, you know, other teams would kill to have William Nenander on their top line. Yes, seriously. And, and, you know, I've made... Um... I made a joke at one point in 2019 about the Penguins getting these anonymous players uh, to play with Crosby and Malkin, and then it, it turned into a bit of a meme. But the reality is that that also reflects that it's hard to get lots of great wingers, and it's a rare opportunity. You know, there are plenty of teams that you can look at that are playing kind of mediocre guys as second-line wingers. And, you know, we're doing that with one wing spot. But Nylander really does elevate this this team and the line that he's on. And I certainly think that there's a bit of familiarity breeding contempt because people look at what they imagine he could do compared to what he does rather than what the world without him looks like, which is a worse Leafs team, full stop. Mm. So, yeah. Um I don't actually have a ton of Newlander discourse to add on this one. I feel like we've talked about him four billion times on this podcast. So Yeah, there, there's, you know, our feelings on Newlander are well yeah. known. Okay. Alex Kalchenyuk, um, who was second line left wing at the time when I did this. Uh, he was bumped off it to start the game last night, but he wound up back there again. Uh, I think the only fair grade is incomplete. Yeah, but, played four four games or something. Yeah, like that. but he is worth talking about because he's being much discussed, and he did have a good game last night. He did, mm-hmm. and you know he the the line with him Tavares and Nylander has been you know comically good in a very in a tiny sample. They have like an eighty two percent expected goals percentage in in thirty minutes. It must be said. Yeah. Um. So I mean, at this point, I think all we can say is, hey, that looks good. That that's something neat to fall back on. It probably does not and should not affect the Leafs' pursuit of a big boy to play that second line left wing, or you know, or maybe free up Kerfoot to play that instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I think that there's always this temptation with Galchenyuk because he was a top three pick, because he had a thirty goal season quite early, because there's an obvious amount of talent there with him. There's a hope to think, okay, we found the guy who could do this, who can perform at this level. And I have a strong prior on this, which is that he hasn't done that in a long time. Y- you know, he, he had a really rough go in Pittsburgh, for example. Didn't really mm. do that much in Arizona. I mean, he was a little productive in Arizona. And, and then he, he was trying to rebuild his career in Minnesota after the deadline last year. The pandemic stopped him almost immediately. And then, you know, he wound up on the free agent market, wound up in Ottawa, didn't do a whole lot there. So there have been a lot of teams that have bought the dream of Alex Galchenyuk in recent years and haven't gotten a whole lot for it. That doesn't mean that the Leafs won't. It just means that I'm going to be cautious about assuming they will after four games. 
Right. It's like that Arrested Development uh, scene where it's like, you know, people always try this and you know, does it work for them? No. No, it never works for them. Of course not. But maybe it'll work for us. Right? Um, yeah. And and that's, it, it is very appealing. There's a very kind of romantic quality to the story here of, you know, the, the failed top five pick finding redemption on his arch rival's team. Or on the or on the arch rival of the team that drafted mm-hmm. him. I love this. And right? also, yeah, there's a dream it's... of Alex Galchenyuk, series-winning goal against the Montreal Canadiens that's possible this year. That's so beautiful, I can't even allow myself to dream of it because it will haunt me. Right. Like, Bradley Cooper's on standby to play the role of Galchenyuk. <laughs> you know, it, it's made for a movie. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the reason we watch movies is because real life isn't often history. <laughs> right? Uh and yeah, there's a very real chance that Galchenyuk turns back into the pumpkin that justifies why he's on his like sixth team. Yeah, and um, yeah. and uh, the one thing I do want to say is like whenever a skill player bounces around, there's always some kind of discussion of how his character is is, is a failing of him, and that you know he doesn't want it bad enough or he's coasting on his skill or whatever. By all accounts, that is not the case with Galchenyuk. Yeah, I I. I don't know. You hear all this nonsense and chatter and all this sort of stuff, and I discount pretty much all of it. I, I did see something that was of some interest. It was from Jack Hahn, who was a video coach for the Marlies at one point, and he remarked on Galchenyuk having a very weird skating stance that he said mm-hmm. put strain on Galchenyuk's knee and has re- been relevant to Galchenyuk suffering strains and injuries and not reaching his potential. And Jack Hahn predicted that once he got into the Toronto organization, the Leafs would handle it a lot better than other teams have done. I don't know if that's true. I don't really have any uh, competence to analyze his point there. But I did think it was interesting to note. If you want to talk yourself into the division of Alex Galchenyuk, where the Leafs do succeed in making him a successful reclamation project... You want something like that where it's, okay, here's what's actually been holding him back and here's how we're going to fix it by getting some sessions with Barb Underhill. I almost hate saying that because I think Barb Underhill has become a magic spell for Leaf fans for just, oh, he's a bad skater, but we can fix him. But maybe there's something there. There's a little bit that can help him at least get back in the direction of the player he once was. He doesn't have to be Alex Galchenyuk, crazy dominant 30-goal scorer. To be effective. He just has to be guy who can sort of keep up with Tavares and Nylander for the foreseeable future or bottom sixer. Yeah, exactly. Um, going back to our point about skills discussion mm-hmm. and how difficult it is to build skills when you're at the NHL level. I think it's also difficult to break habits. Yes, definitely. When you're at the definitely. NHL level, right? Think about how much time these guys have spent on the ice. If you if you build those bad habits in skating, it, it's hard to break them down. Um and I doubt it's a three-week process, which is about how long Gochenik has been on the league. Yeah, and you know, he's 27. Like, a lot of his habits are going to be very hard set. Actually, you know, this came up with Elias Patterson, where someone remarked on his skating start is actually kind of bad by conventional standards. Like, someone said, imagine how good he would be if he were a good skater, because he's actually not, uh, by traditional technical metrics, uh, well, not metrics, analysis. Yeah, this was Reese Jessup, I believe. Yes, it was. That. Yes. Uh, good call. And yeah, it was just, he's not actually that greatest skater, and a lot of people were upset, but it's like, 
Sometimes players who are really, really good find something that sort of works for them or just do their best with whatever they have physiologically going on and they come to some sort of solution and they're as effective as they are. And some of these are not things that you can necessarily fix. And I don't know how much of that is true of Galchenyuk. He is a fascinating player. The talent level is obvious. He's still among the most productive players in his draft year. Um, Says more about the draft year. Yeah, it was a bad draft. But... um, for forwards, especially. I mean, like you got there was good. Yeah, yeah, draft, bad right? forwards. Riley, Truba, Lindholm. Yeah, even then, like aside from Galchenyuk, I know Philip Forsberg was in that, and I think Thomas Hurdle, but like it was a yeah. thin crop. Anyway, it, it really was. <laughs> but um, yeah, so as long as he's getting this opportunity, great. Make the most of it. Have games like last night where you get two assists. That'll be pretty swell. Right and. I think the, what I want to point out about those assists, well, specifically his drop pass for Taveras, that's a high-level pass, right? That's that's a pass of someone who is reading the game, who knows where his teammates mm-hmm. are. Um, he had a, another pass to Jason Spezza that was another kind of high degree of difficulty, high-value pass. Mm-hmm. Um, the the play to that ended up going to Nylander for the tying goal, there was a bit of luck there because he was trying to pass it to Justin Hall, uh, who was kind of pinching in in front and directed off Hall and into the slot for Nylander. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you know, that that's another high-value pass from behind the net to the net front. Mm-hmm. Th- those are the plays he needs to make, and he's capable of making them. It's a question of whether he can keep doing that, whether his defensive deficiencies, which are very real, are, um, you know, mitigated enough to, um, you know, stomach playing him in a, in a pretty high role. Yeah, and there was uh, a lot of discussion comparing him to Jimmy Vesey, who did not do a whole lot of anything, wound up getting claimed on waivers... And so, certainly Galchenyuk has looked more effective than VC ever did. Which is not a high bar to clear, but that's sort of mm. who had the job. And then Wayne Simmons, as we've said, is still returning from injury and also is not the player he once was. So, until the Leafs make a trade, Galchenyuk has as good a chance as anybody at sticking in that role. And so let's hope he makes the most of it. Yep. Uh, Alex Kerfoot. Mm. This this one hurts a little bit. I gave him a C plus. Yeah. I was probably generous. I gave him a C. I gave him a C minus. I Kerfoot should be really uh, thankful of his PDO bender. Yes. Um, he he's he he has among the worst play driving or you know on ice numbers of the Leafs besides goal score percentage. Right. Which is not to say his numbers are terrible. He's actually above water in Corsi, for example. But the Leafs are a good team, so that's true of most of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he, his basically his goal results are completely at odds with his on-ice results. And that's not something we would expect to continue. As a result, his point totals are higher than you know we should expect them to be going forward. He, he, the third line's anchored by him without Hyman have not really been successful mm-hmm. uh, to my eye. So, like, whenever, whenever Hyman is, is played higher up, which I think is kind of when the team is at its best, or at least when the top lines are at its best, I feel like Kerfoot hasn't done a phenomenal job um, at holding the fort on that third line. Yeah. And... It, it, it's been... A, with with this kind of odd couple <laughs> line with him, Spezza, and Thornton, just a weird collection <laughs> of players when you think about it. Um... I think that's been like reasonably successful, but it, it's been such a small size, sample size with it that I don't know really what to think of it. 
I think the bottom line on Kerfoot, as it's turned out, is that he's a good complementary player. But we got him in the hopes of him being a third-line center. And he's, mm-hmm. at times, hung in well this year. It hasn't gone so well. And I am coming around to the idea that if Alex Kerfoot is the best player on a line, it's not that good a line. And I think that we've seen that yeah. a few times now. He's looked at the second line left wing spot where he's come in a couple of times. He's looked great. And, you know, obviously it's easier to look good next to Tavares and Nylander. Several players have done it. Alex Kilchenyuk, we just talked about a bunch. But, like, you could absolutely talk me into the idea that the Leafs don't need to be chasing a second line left wing at all. Put Alex Kerfoot there. Done. Get a third line center who can keep his head up. Like, I wouldn't even have said no to acquiring Eric Stahl, as the Canadians did, because I think there's probably more in him than it looked like in Buffalo. But, as it is relating to Kerfoot, I don't know that we're seeing enough out of him to pin my hopes on him for being a third-line center. The Leafs' center depth is not that great. We have a lot of guys who are basically wingers now who can play center, and then we have... Pierre Engvall, who we'll talk about, but who basically doesn't score at any kind of top nine level. Yeah. The, so, throughout the last, I don't know, 18 months since we've got Kerfoot, I've defended him a lot To when people say, oh, you know, the Leafs really like him as a, as a winger as opposed to a center. He's not really good at center. And I think last year he was he was fine at center. That's the thing, fine. Mm-hmm. He was a competent third-line center. And I think people often forget, you know, competent third-line centers don't look good. Mm-hmm. Right? They, 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 they look okay. Right. They're, they don't you, they don't make you hate them. They're always a shooting percentage slump or a PDO slump away from looking off. Yes, right. And I, I still think Kerfoot kind of fits in that. But like, I, I I still think he. I guess my my thinking now has essentially come around to um, him being a mediocre third line mm-hmm. center. Right. And in the last over last year and at the start of this year, I was hoping he could be you know a strong third line center and there's a very very fine margin between those right but it's you know something where his numbers and his play driving and how he looks in the eye test when he doesn't have really strong line mates play driving line mates to play off of has been uh, poor enough that it's it's made me more pessimistic and i think you know in hindsight i was probably a bit too vociferous in defending him uh, as a center because he needs it, it seems like he needs kind of fairly specific construction around him to get the most out of him but when you're the third line center you don't get that luxury exactly the Leafs are not designed to get the best performance out of Alex Kerfoot that's not what they're for and he's not a player that you move parts around to accommodate he's a player that you move around to accommodate other players and so I think this is something that I know I struggle with a little bit is when people are making a bit of an unfair argument about something I perhaps react in the other direction based on how unfair that argument is. And I think I might have done that with Kerfoot. Because people held the Kadri trade against him. The Kadri trade was not good. It did not work out the way that we hoped. Full stop. I think everyone knows that, given the chance, the Leafs would undo that trade. And Mm -hmm. Colorado, obviously, would never in a thousand years. It is what it is. And so it's not fair to blame Kerfoot for how much we paid to get him in a trade. And I think I kind of wanted to stick up for him because I think he can still be sort of a competent forward. And it's not fair to hold him to the standard of Nazem Kadri, who's a good second-line center. And also, we both liked 
we both liked him as a piece in that trade. We both thought he was the more valuable piece than Tyson Berry, which was correct. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Turned out not to be saying but, much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, it's possible we were overly impressed with some of the stats that he was able to put up in Colorado. Colorado has done this a few times now where they've had guys in the, the meat of their lineup who end up with quite good defensive results as forwards. And hmm. I don't know how much of that is usage, how much of that is just the Avs are a good team, maybe it's a fluke. But the, the thing is, when Kerfoot was there, they weren't, they weren't the Avs that they no, are they now. Weren't right? a, now ten, ten. I can kind of understand it, because they have um, uh, Kale McCarr and Sam Girard and um, Devin Taves. That team is fucking ridiculous, like, really, <laughs> Yeah, really, really good defensemen. Girard and Taves especially, you know, every, from... Every three weeks, someone on a hockey Twitter asks, who's the most underrated player in the league? And then 5,000 people say Alexander Barkov, um, which, <laughs> you know, it's kind of defeats the purpose of the yeah. argument. Um, but, you know, Sam Girard and Devin Taves, I think, could be in that argument right now. They won't be a year from now. Yeah, I... Right, it's a very, it's a moving target. Um, especially because they're going to probably do quite well in the playoffs this year, the Avs. They look like an absolute juggernaut. But yeah, like, Kerfoot, I think... I think we took the numbers with a grain of salt. We didn't expect him to be an elite defensive player based on that because, no. you know, we, we were told and believed a lot of the outstanding. We said, yeah, he was, you know, split time at wing and center and wasn't amazing at center. I think we were hoping, okay, can he provide, you know, 75% of Nassim Kadri at 75% of the price? Mm-hmm. And again, he, he, it's not like he's done awful at delivering that. The, the thing that Kadri really provides that Kerfoot does not is power play skill. Right, and we don't really need that. And so the argument was exactly. always, okay, you're overloaded on the power play. Kadri's a luxury third-line center. Reallocate some money. And the problem was we reallocated some money to Tyson Berry for the first year. Didn't work. And now we've got Alex Kerfoot on our hands, who's, I still think, useful. Like, he's he gets to the right he's, place uh, yeah, sometimes. We're, we're being kind of negative mm-hmm. on him. He's a decent player. He's not an outstanding uh, third-line center, but... He, he is a fine third-line center. Yeah, you can play him there and not die, which doesn't sound like very much. But at the same time, if you're not playing him there, you're playing Pierre Engvall, basically. That's really the problem, yeah. is we have no one else behind him. Yeah. Um, and another thing is his face-offs, his inability to win face-offs hurts him on the margins. Face-offs don't usually matter that much, but he's pretty bad at them as far as full-time centers go. Yes, and it... Also hurts him in the eyes of his coaches. Like, I think a huge factor in Sheldon Keefe constantly moving him away from center and then putting him back for lack of alternatives is the lack of face-offs. Because that's one of the most obvious things that a coach can look at and say, he's not doing what a good center does. And so it's possible it hurts him more in the estimation of his coaches or of evaluators than it actually does on the ice, but it still matters. I don't think you should be giving away Alex Kerfoot for the sake of not having to think about the cadre trade anymore, which I think is where a lot of people are at mentally. Also because right. he makes good salary ballast in a lot of trade scenarios. Yeah. There's, so there's something in the NBA, an NBA podcaster I listened to coined this thing called the Nene test. Nene was a, was a player in the NBA and he, he basically straddled that line of, um, at a point when he, he got like a fairly decent contract by NBA standards, which is like 17 million, which is, <laughs> A little insane when you think about it compared to the NHL. Yeah. But he straddled that line between, is this player an asset, or do we have to pay a team to take him? Yeah, and he was right on right? that. So, so, yeah, so the, 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 the test is, you know, if I have a player, do I have to give up an asset to trade them, or will I get one for trading them? 
And with Kerfoot, I would still want to get an asset for trading him. I wouldn't trade him for nothing. Yes, yes, I agree. He, I do think his eventual fate, if he is traded, is because the guy coming back makes a lot of money. Yes. The, the other thing is, like, there's been talk about, say, uh, Mikhail Granlund. Mm-hmm. And, uh, okay, you know, we swap Kerfoot for Granlund. And I mentioned this. Uh, this feels like robbing Peter to pay Paul. Yeah. Um, and a lot of these trades for, you know, a decent middle six guy that involve Kerfoot going the other way, it's like, okay, what are we actually doing here? Are we just trading him for a guy who we're not mad at? Yes. And that I think that's a real concern there because it's like, okay, we've said he's a fine third line center, maybe even a good middle six winger. And yeah, that's the thing. He, he does have utility as a middle six winger. I know we, we've kind of said, okay, you know, anyone with Tavares and Elander can work, but as this season has shown, that is not actually one completely true. Yeah. And so, so, yeah, I think that we're kind of wrestling with how to value him appropriately, not falling into the trap of overvaluing him based on what we expected or hoped from him in the beginning, but also not swinging too far in the other direction out of frustration. I do think that there is a real risk where you send him out and you get back a pretty decent guy and your net benefit is nothing or very small. So I don't want to give him up just to get Mikhail Granlin, even though I think Mikhail Granlin is better because I think that that's like a a trivial improvement. So, yeah, it's a bit... It's a bit of a painful thing to discuss, frankly, because I, I think if there is a mark against Kyle Dubas, it's how badly the Kadri trade went. And then, you know, we have repaired Mitch Marner a little bit, but... Mm. Yeah, it, like it didn't work, and we have to move forward on it. But I think you can look at this forward lineup and say that the problems that we're looking to fix center a lot around Alex Kerfoot one way or another. Yeah, more or less. Um, but you know, transitioning from Kerfoot as maybe a failure or a symbol of a failure of a move from Kyle Dubas to um, a couple players who kind of represent some of the successes Dubas has mm-hmm. had, particularly in convincing... Toronto and GTA players at the end of their careers to come to Toronto. Uh, we have Joe Thornton and Jason Spencer up next. So we'll do these individually, yeah. but there's some symmetry there. Let's start with Thornton. Yeah. I, I gave him a B plus, And you can say that I'm being actually a little ungenerous in doing that because it's all about what level do you set for how good is Joe Thornton supposed to be? I know you gave him a high It's rate. tough because he's, he's playing a weird role. He's listed in the top six a lot of the time, but he's playing this fake top six role. When you look at kind of in aggregate how the Leafs use their forwards. There's Marner, Matthews, Mm. big gap, Hyman, Tavares, Nienander, enormous gap, everyone else. And Thornton falls in that everyone else thing despite him nominally starting on the first or second line a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Like push comes to shove at some point in the third period and suddenly Zach Hyman is back up and Joe Thornton is back down. And I don't even think that that's necessarily a bad way to use him. You know, depending on his age, you do want to shepherd his resources a little bit. So if you evaluate him against his salary, which is $700,000, he's A++++ because he's yeah. like a competent middle six player with flashes of brilliance for nothing. So that's great. For a guy of his age, again, A++ because there are so few players his age still playing. It's him and Zidane Ochara, basically. Um, he's older than Marlowe, isn't he? And I believe yeah, so. And Marlowe Could... isn't 
playing well. He's just going for the games played record on a team that is going nowhere. So, yeah, like just being effective at his price point and age is kind of extraordinary. I gave him a B plus mostly because we are still sort of using him as a top six-ish winger, which suggests a certain level of expectation. And he's not underperforming it either. He's just sort of along for the ride and making some good passes, but mostly he's he's very clearly the third guy, as we've said. Yeah, I, I tried really not to hold his usage against him, similar to, to, to Simmons. Yeah. I think everyone would agree, okay, Zach Hyman on one of the top two lines is, is better than Joe Thornton there. Uh, we only have one Zach Hyman, though, and we apparently need him on all of our <laughs> other lines, too, which, which we'll get to. So Thornton kind of has this fake top six role, and I think he's been good mm-hmm. at it. Right again, the the on ice numbers are, are genuinely strong. Obviously, when he plays with Matthews and um, Marner, he's he's the third guy on that. Right, he's the third most important to their success. But away from Matthews and Marner, it's not like he is completely tumbled. Mm-hmm. Right, he he's still been a useful player away from them. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that's that's all you can ask for, and it's it's he's been good. He's added some, some levity to the team, some jokes. He gave us Willie Styles as a nickname and you really can't put a price on that. <laughs> Again, a plus plus by that standard. So yeah. And, and, you know, you still get to see occasionally glimpses of, of what made him so good in his prime. Mm-hmm. You know, he's still one, he's huge, which helps him protect the puck. And he's still very smart. Like every now and then he'll make a pass where it's just sort of like, okay, the list of guys who can make that pass in the NHL is real short. Mitch Marner is probably on it, but still. Like, it's just not something you get to see that often from players who are not of that elite, elite playmaking level. Even now, seeing right. it from the, a guy who's in his 40s. And Yeah, yeah. The, the broadcast angle is designed to make fans seem smarter than players, right? We have a much better view of things than players mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. And there are still times when, when Joe Thornton will surprise the viewer with a pass, which is hard to do because the, the point of the broadcast angle is to show the viewer everything. Yeah, you know, the, the old right. cliches, you, you, it's always you know what all the, the options press are. box, right? But, yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right, so that, that's, you know, one of the highest uh, praises I can offer to any passer. Mm-hmm. And Thornton still has that. Um, and, I mean, so does Spezza. Yeah. Right? So Spezza, I think we both gave him A+. Pluses. How, can, how can you not? His... Point production is just absurd. He's like half a point per game, playing 10 minutes a night. He's ridiculous. Okay, so again, this stat was as of Friday, which is when I ran it. Um, set a 100-minute minimum, which just gets rid of guys who were like played nothing. And then sort by points per 60. And Spezza was 19th in the NHL. And the first 18 guys are all like star players making $5 million a year. And then Jason Spezza is 19th making 700 k Yeah, and... We have to mention, there is just an enormous amount of kind of good fortune here. Oh, yeah. Um, Spezza is almost two and a half times his expected goals right now. His individual points percentage is above 100%, (laughs) um, which only happens if you get points on plays you are actually not on the ice for. So, like, you pass to someone, you change, and then they score. Um, You know, there's... Yeah, like, this is not going to continue, but... He still does have, you know, high-level NHL skill. His hands are still, you know, good. His vision is still very good. He can still beat goalies. He can, I know he came into the league really in 2005, but every goal he scores looks like it comes from the eight, 1985 instead. <laughs> yeah, because he's got a clapper on him. He just loves rifling yeah. it. It's, it's, so, it's so weird. I'm convinced goalies are just, like, not expecting it. Yeah. 
It, well, I mean, there's some sort of game theory idea that as that becomes less and less a part of most players' games, it becomes something that you don't prepare for as a goalie. So there may even be something in that where it's just sort of like, I didn't expect him to just whistle one by my ears into the top of the net. And so I do think you see plays from Spezza where you're like, oh, right, this guy was a star player, a really good star player. He was the 1C on a team that made a incredible run to the Stanley Cup Finals. And I can acknowledge that now because, one, he's not in Ottawa anymore, and two, Ottawa safely lost in the end. But he was a really, really good player, and you're still seeing elements of that that are great. You know, defensively, there's not a lot to offer there, except that he's a very good face-off man. But that's cool. Having a guy who can chip in a bit of offense from your fourth line is awesome. Having a guy who yeah. everyone loves, who does it for $700,000, is incredible. So Yep, he's succeeding in his role, yeah. right? So yeah. And we're paying him literally the lowest amount we could possibly pay someone to do that. So there, there's, there's no... There's no quibbling with uh, with what Jason Spezza has provided this yeah, team. Yeah, we have nothing really else to analyze there. We just wanted to mention that we love him, and he's great. Mm. Uh, Pierre Engvall, this is a weird one. Um, I gave him a B. I gave him a B-. minus. Basically, my grades are your grades, but like minus one. <laughs> <laughs> like, you take, take it one notch down. Oh, man. Yeah, and so this is, again, a weird one to level set because he didn't even make the team coming out of the abbreviated training camp. And I think part yeah. of it was Sheldon Keefe was mad at him. Yeah, for some reason. <laughs> I, I, look, I don't know why or what it is. He just seemed very frustrated with uh, Keefe. And it's interesting because they should know each other pretty well. Maybe he, he was mm. thinking, I just, I know what Engvall is capable of and he wasn't giving it to me at the time. Who can say? I think he's pretty clearly one of the 12 best forwards. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, but he seems like just a guy. Yeah. He... Which is yeah. fine. Teams need guys. Yeah. I mean, somebody has to play on the fourth line, and it's not always going to be someone as even as good as Pierre Engvall, believe it or not. It's very tempting to think that he can be more because he's very big and he skates really well. And those two things together seem like they should get you a long way. He's not very good in the offensive zone. No. No. Um, that's just the reality. And... Right, and it's like, Kathy has mentioned this a couple of times, where when people bemoan that, like, oh, Engvall doesn't score enough, that, well, yeah, he, he, he does not have the ability to score enough. No, it's not that he doesn't like, that's want not, to. Yeah, it's just he, he's not that type of player. Yeah, and so, yeah, you know, you make your peace with this is what Pierre Engvall is and does and can be, and you can sort of appreciate him. I, I wound up... The, a, the one thing I'll say... Oh, sorry, go ahead, finish your point. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, I did find myself wrestling with how to rate him because he's played third-line center, which is interesting because he's been part of lines that have sort of worked bafflingly and maybe not in a way that's sustainable, and, you know, they benefit from Zach Hyman, who's clearly a better player. But still, he's a very good defensive player, and, you know, he can rush the puck back up the ice where I guess someone else will have to do something with it, but still he can take it there. <laughs> and I could see him having a decent run in this league just based on what he brings, but he's got to get better at face-offs if he can at all do it. This is the thing. Mm -hmm. And I know that he's working yeah. on it and he's talked about 
It's hard for him. I'm sure it is. It's not easy. I imagine it is, especially because he's so tall, mm. right? I, I, I guess, like, this, maybe this is a weird comparison, but, like, I, I view face-offs almost like uh, wrestling matches where you want leverage, mm. right? And you get leverage by being the low man. Yeah, just get under the other guy and then, you know, lift his stick up or whatever with your skate or what, what have you, but, like... Yeah, and Engvall's so tall and gangly that that might be hard for him. Yeah, and, and I mean, whatever the cause, he hasn't been a good face-off man, and that's really what holds him back from being a classic fourth-line center. Yeah, and, I mean, we often remark about, oh, face-offs are overrated in how they are discussed, which I think is, is true, mm-hmm. but the reason they're overrated is because the vast majority of NHL players fit into this very narrow 45-55% bucket, mm-hmm. and Engvall does not. He is horrific at them by NHL standards. Yeah, last time I looked, he was 39 and yeah, he, he looks like if you dropped, you know, a random person in, into a face-off, right? Like, he's not much better than, than that. Yeah, and that's unfortunate for him because he checks other boxes, right? Big, defensively solid, can skate a little, can keep up with the play, works hard on the ice, uh, to my eye test anyway. I mean, again, I don't know if Sheldon Keefe was reacting to something else that I'm not privy to, but... He looks to me like a classic, good 9-10 forward. Like, the kind of guy who can slip up to your third line, and that's okay. Or who can be a good fourth liner and will occasionally chip something in, and you'll be like, oh, isn't it nice to have him? 1.25 million a year is a bit much it's a, for that. a little rich for yeah. him in that sense. Yeah, that, so that's the thing. Like, the, 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 the Hyman, Engvall, Mikheyev line, well, I guess, you know, which is kind of the line we're discussing in, with these next three players, mm-hmm. it, it's an attempt to make a, a shutdown line, right. more or less. Um, and if, if, if that's something that can actually succeed against good opposition, then suddenly all of these players, but Hyman and Engvall, speci- or sorry, Engvall and Mikheyev specifically, because we're not, we don't need to be convinced of Hyman's value, they suddenly really increase in value. Mm-hmm. Right? Because you're like, okay, we can actually use these guys against big boys and, you know, have something successful there. That line has played now 90 minutes. Their numbers are very good. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's something to to keep going back to. Maybe we're underrating Engvall a little bit. Um, it is worth mentioning. We're kind of speaking a bit negatively of him here or like with kind of disappointed tones. We gave him B and B minuses. We're saying he's at expectations, basically. Yeah, it's the only question is what should you reasonably expect from Pierre Engvall, which I think is a bit of an open question. But at this point, it's like, right. okay, he will be a quite good defensive forward. He will not score very much. And there's yeah. like a Mendoza line of offense in, in hockey for a player like him, which I think is about 15, 20 points a year, which he can meet. And that's about it. If If he could just get to being like a 50% face-off guy or even like within shouting distance uh, of 50%. Even a 45% face-off yeah. guy would be such a huge improvement. Just don't get like cleaned out all the time. And, and you know, yeah. th- there's some utility there in being able to play him with Jason Spezza if it comes to that because Spezza can take draws. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and, and it's the kind of thing that even if we think sometimes it's overrated, although as we've said, he's, he's well below the, the normal zone. But even if we think that maybe that's overrated a little bit, that still has a huge bearing on his future career because coaches are going it to... It matters with coaches, yeah. yeah. And, you know, a guy like Engvall, when you're on the fringe or on the bubble, you need coaches to like you. And coaches are going to like a lot of what he brings if he can keep that going. 
I, like, I'm totally fine keeping him around as a f- fourth liner indefinitely, and I'll live with the slight overpay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's just, can he, can he find any other level there? Because he can almost be on the cusp of being a playable third-line guy. Yeah. Um, so last two points I'll mention, and we'll move on to, to McKay. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, there's room for upside here in the sense that if Engvall shows he can be part of a real shutdown line, then that's that's huge, as I, as I mentioned before. It's even more elevated if he can do that without Zach Hyman. <clears throat> yes. Engvall and Mikheyev, without Hyman, have not looked great together. I think most of those minutes have been with Kerfoot, who's, as we've discussed, had a bit of his struggles when he, he's asked to be really the lead guy on a line. Um, so that would be kind of the avenue by which Engvall and Mikheyev, by extension, can prove their value to this team. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing I'd say is that Engvall has this kind of, not unique trait, but he, he'll surprise you every game or so with a move where he'll do something just kind of clever to keep the puck mm. when, when the Leafs are changing, for example. Like, he'll see we're changing, he'll just circle back. He's not dumping it out. He'll just circle back and regroup, and the Leafs keep the puck and now can do a breakout, mm-hmm. right? Or he'll, you know, find a clever little pass in the neutral zone just to maintain possession of the puck. He, he's absolutely a guy who, on a team like Vegas, you know, will show up and then have a good game in a playoff series. And everyone's like, who the fuck is Pierre Engel? Yeah. Where did Vegas get this guy from? Mm-hmm. Right? Because he's so fast and so rangy. And it's just, you know, he and Mikheyev stretch out their sticks and they block out the entire neutral zone. I think they can be really useful in that sense. But neither of them have the skills to put pressure on oppositions in other ways. Yeah. Like if, right. So that, that's the issue. If you make him a little better offensively, he becomes a very interesting player very quickly, but you know, you can't just do that. So <laughs> uh, that's the unfortunate thing. So it's, it's all about what other skills can Pierre Engvall develop. And, and maybe there aren't that many. He's already come a very long way for being a seventh round pick. Right. So, yeah, I, I remember, you know, in the years after we drafted him, um, a PPP commenter, not Norm Ullman, was always talking up Engvall. And I, I just always, always rolled my eyes like, oh, come on, Norm. You know, yeah. he, Engvall, he's not making the NHL. And, you know, I have to eat my words. He's made the NHL and he, he deserves to be in the NHL. Yeah, you got to give him that one. He's a player. Um, yeah. So Ilya Mikheyev, uh, I gave him a C. I think this is one of the few times you had him higher than I did. I gave him a C plus, yeah, but I think I don't think I disagree with anything you said. Yeah, it's it's pretty simple. I think Ilya Mikheyev is going to frustrate people as long as he is in the NHL because he's going to get a lot of breakaways and he won't score on them very much. He's a huge gunner. Like the thing is, is that he's not a great offensive zone player, not for want of trying. He will shoot at the net constantly. He is a machine gunner, but it's kind of blind firing. It feels like. And so it can be very frustrating watching him get chance after chance after chance and then wildly undershoot his, his XG, which I think he is going to do forever because that's just what he is. That's what he brings. If you can kind of put that frustration aside a little bit, I think you can appreciate some things about him. He, he, again, he's very quick. He's a good skater. He's quite good defensively. He gets compared to Kasperi Kapanen sometimes. Uh, in terms of wingers who have frustrated people. And Kapanen, it has to be said, is much better offensively. But also, I think Mikheyev's defensive effort is never in doubt. Like, he's a good defensive winger. And him and Engvall together have made an interesting line where, as you said, 
they're both huge with big wingspans. They can both skate. And they can both be very frustrating to play against, except they don't finish at the end, so they're kind of frustrating to watch, too. Not only do they not finish, they don't really create. No, no. They don't... Uh, they don't bring as much as it seems like they should be able to, frankly. I, I This is a personal bias, maybe because I was such a bad skater and it always held me back. But I keep thinking guys who can skate that well really should be more effective than they are. And it's just how it is. 1.645 million a year. It's rich. Look, that that's too much for a guy who can't produce. I don't think there's any way around that. He needs to score more to be really worth it. And... Until he does that, it's a bit of a negative value contract. Yeah, I mean, at that again, it's, this isn't exorbitant, but at that price range, you're hoping for a guy who you can kind of set and forget in your bottom six. Yeah, and, and Engvall kind of is, or sorry, Mikheyev kind of is that, but he hasn't really done phenomenally well this year. Uh, he, he, you know, the lines he's been on again away from Hyman have have been kind of poor, and that that's you know the the, the bottom six, at least bottom six generally has been a weird case where, like, okay, everyone with Spezza is doing okay, but we, we seem to accept that Spezza ha- has to be in that fourth-line role. We can't really move him away from that. Mm-hmm. He's, like, he won't be able to succeed higher up. Right. Right? And then whenever we put Hyman there, Hyman drags everyone who he's playing with to success, too, but we also want Hyman higher up. Mm-hmm. So everyone else has to kind of try and fit between those two players. Yeah. And they haven't really done so incredibly successfully this year. They haven't been bad, right? That's the thing. We're not giving anyone, like, Ds, really. Mm-hmm. No, one, no one's been, you know, playing him, playing their way off the team awful. Yeah. But there, there's a little more that I, I hope we could get from them. Yeah, and it is worth saying, Mikhaev has five goals this year, which is not great, but five goals in 34 games, you know, if you're, like, a 10-12 goal guy, that's not awful. It's just, you, it's a little bit less than you want. And it's frustrating because you watch him get these chances and you think this guy should be a 20-goal guy. This guy should just capitalize a little bit more often instead of having plays that peter out into bad shots or, or shots that just seem to be magnetized to the goalie. Yeah, the, the one thing I wonder, I feel like maybe Mikheyev is, is also particularly suited to struggle against good defensive teams we saw against columbus i mean he was you know far far from being the only one who fell into this trap mm-hmm. um against columbus but columbus just baited him into taking dumbass shots and he took the bait every time yeah like that's the thing is you're like hey Ilya, shoot from there i bet you can he's like yes i can and then he just whistles it and <laughs> he misses the net or hits the crest or whatever so yeah so i mean there, there's talk about okay you know uh, is is William Nylander a guy who can succeed in the playoffs? And I, to, to be fair, I don't think that's a ridiculous question, mm. right? Because Nylander has not been particularly amazing in the playoffs. He's been far from alone in that respect. And he had a great series against Washington in his rookie year. He's had success against uh, the Bruins. And it has to be said, he was forced into these positions where he's some, some, suddenly playing center when it matters the most, despite <laughs> never playing center through the regular season. Yeah, that was rough. And, you know, some of that was forced through suspension. Some of that was forced through Keefe desperation. Um, you know, there, there's explanations for it, but we need William Nylander to be William Nylander in the playoffs. And I generally believe that good regular season players are often good playoff players. Mm-hmm. We need him to, to show that, and I, I have reasonable confidence that he will. Um, with someone like Mikheyev, I think a similar question also holds, though. You know, if, you know, when when teams get better about 
not just being out-efforted on the penalty kill. Mm-hmm. Right? When, when Mikheyev just skating harder and faster than them and around them is not enough to generate a couple chances, which maybe he converts. What does he offer in that situation? And we don't know, right? It's unfair to judge him completely on the Columbus series. He was coming back from a pretty brutal injury. Mm-hmm. Basically no leaf forward, except maybe Matthews and Tavares covered themselves in any glory at all. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's something that is worth noting um, as we head to the playoffs this year. Yeah, and so it's something that, you know, we have to keep in mind. I do think with Mikhaev, he's the quintessential example of that that old line that he's the kind of forward who your primary memory of him will be him not scoring. Because he mm. will get flashy chances and he won't convert on them at a high rate. And he, if he did convert it on them at a high rate, he would be a much higher paid and better player. And so you sort of have to accept that he is what he is. We hoped for more from his, his hot start to his NHL career, and it looks like he's more of just a guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that brings us to Zach Hyman. Again, this was what the lines were like when I did this. Obviously, he's not the 12th forward. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, we, we talked about Joe Thornton's fake top six role. Zach Hyman, whenever he's listed in the bottom six, it's a fake bottom six role. Yes. Um, I gave Zach Hyman an A+. Yeah, I don't think you can uh, give him anything besides that. Yeah, he's been unbelievable. Uh, And this is something that we've been kind of teasing throughout the podcast, but we're talking about the ability to improve and acquire new skills. I genuinely can't think of a player who has improved offensively past the age of 25 to the extent that Zach Hyman has. Now, at lower levels, he was a good offensive player. You know, he played with... uh, Dylan Larkin in college, which obviously helped. But he's shown an ability to adapt and improve his game that is remarkable. We talk about forwards as if they're basically finished products at 24. And often that's about right. But Zach Hyman is the exception as a player who genuinely added more to his game as he went along. And he went from a exciting good grinder who basically relied on the jam play more than anything... To a guy who's an all-around, really good, top-six NHL power forward. And who can bring an, an element of defensive solidity, forechecking, even a bit of finish. Uh, to lines that could use it. He makes any line that we put him on better. And kind of remarkably, that hyman engvall Mikheyev line is a fascinating mix of skill sets, but its obvious weakness is offense, and it's worked better than I thought it would because Zach Hyman has been better offensively than I I still even thought he had in him at the start of the year, and I thought he was really good then. So, yeah. yeah. That, that's the thing. Hyman has flashed on these lower lines the ability to actually create offense, mm-hmm. right? And not just create it for himself, but create it for teammates, which is not a skill he had flashed before it's not something he had ever really had to do before because he, he could depend on Nylander or Matthews or Marner or Traveras, whoever he was playing with, to do that. On these lower-level lines, he's he's been, he's been... He's looked like a top-six guy playing on a, on a middle-six or bottom-six line. Mm-hmm. He looks out of place. He looks better than everyone on the ice at those times. He's been really, really good at even strength this year. You know, I've... I bristled a bit when I saw people saying, oh, you know, he's been the Leafs' best winger besides Mitch Marner. I still think that's been Nylander. But at 5-on-5, you know, there's an argument for Hyman. He has the Leafs' best uh, RAPM, 
by by XG. Um, it it's also translating to goals. His point rate at five on five is very nice. So he's yeah. There's there's really nothing to complain about with how Hyman has played, and you know it, basically if if you're judging based on this year, Hyman versus Nylander, it comes down to how you judge Nylander's power play contribution. Mm-hmm. Um, our go-to solution basically for any line that's struggling is to throw Hyman on it. Yeah, and, and Jordan Keith seems to like the idea of a balanced lineup sometimes. And again, he took this into Edmonton. And against Edmonton, you can see why, because they don't have good forward depth. So mm-hmm. his thinking was, okay, I'll split everyone out. He had Hyman Engvall and Mikheyev as the third line. He had a fourth line that was centered by Alex Foot. But push came to shove, and there you have it. Zach Hyman is playing top six again. And I think whenever push does come to shove, that's always going to be our answer. Um... I am a little sad because the price on his next contract keeps going up and up and up, and hmm. I wish him the best. He deserves it. Get that bag. I'm not sure Toronto's going to be able to afford him, and that's a worrying prospect because he brings a lot to this team, and he brings an element that this team maybe doesn't have in great quantity aside from him. He's a terrific complimentary player. The other question with his next deal is how he ages. He turns 29 in June. He gives 300% every single game. I do not know how that's going to age, but my suspicion is it might start to take a toll as the years go by. But right now, he's turned himself into a legit, quite good NHL forward. And for a guy who was acquired for a fifth-round pick, and everyone was like, oh, whatever... Uh, a few years back, you can really see that he made himself what he is. He's, hmm. he's a testament to work ethic. So, uh, yeah, only good things to say about Zach Hyman, the player. And perhaps most importantly, he's he's the one player you can point to and be like, I was right about that guy. Yes, and you know what? Thank you, because I hadn't done that in the segment yet, and it is actually in my contract. I get to do that every time he's brought up. So, yeah. Uh, and you know what? This is the the unfortunate thing about him is that part of what appealed to me is that Mike Babcock talked about him in terms that were really impressed with him. And of course, Mike Babcock's reputation has gone into the toilet since that happened. But Zach Hyman's reputation has rightly risen in subsequent years. So yeah, I I hope we can keep him. He adds a lot. I don't know if I'm going to like the next contract very much from a rational perspective, but I love the player and I love what he brings. Hmm. All right, on to the defenseman, an hour and a half yeah. in. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be one of the mammoth podcasts. Um, yeah. Morgan Riley, I gave a B for being Morgan Riley, and that might even have been a bit ungenerous. I think it was. Yeah. I think it was. I this I think this is the player who our grades diverged the most on, because I gave him an A-. Mm-hmm. And you have a case. Do you want to lead on this one? Because you, you have the numbers behind sure. this one. So basically, you know, don't look now, but Morgan Riley's numbers are, are really good. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a 62% goals for percentage. He has a 57% expected goals percentage. His shot numbers are closer to parity. And here's where I think, you know, some the regression models may not quite be capturing interactions between players and how their styles fit together. Because um, one thing that is happening with the Leafs and how they're being deployed this year is that Riley and Brody are playing a lot, more than you would naively expect if playing time was kind of evenly distributed based on or if even t- if playing time was like proportional 
um, to how much each uh, defense pairing and forward lineup actually played. They're play- uh, Riley's playing more with Matthews and Marner, mm-hmm. right? That's the that's the basic of it. I think I explained that in a kind of clunky way. But basically, Matthews and Marner are playing more than you expect with Riley and Brody. That's the long and short of it. And in those minutes, they are just demolishing people. Mm-hmm. Um, Riley deserves some credit there, but I think what is really happening is that Riley is very well suited to play with Matthews and Marner in a Sheldon Keefe system. Yes. But that's, that's not to say he doesn't deserve credit for being able to do that. That's part of his skill set. Because he's so active, because he's so mobile, because he's so smart about how he jumps in offensively, he's able to take advantage of those two great you know, star players and the gravity that they provide. And he's able to sneak in and also create offense for people from those positions. Mm-hmm. Right? So that, that's, I think, why his expected goals impact this year seems to be exceeding his Corsi impact. It's because when he's on the ice with those guys, they, they supercharge one another. And they just generate a lot of really, really good chances. Yes. And, and yeah, sir, go ahead. yeah, I think that's been really, really good. But Riley still does have all those flaws you mentioned, which I think is why you're, you put him kind of at meets expectations because he's still the same guy you think is that is that fair to say yes and i do think a lot of the discourse around morgan riley is familiarity breeding contempt we've Mm -hmm. seen him forever he's the longest tenured toronto maple leaf we are patently aware of his flaws and you can say that even it seeped into me in giving him a b because i said he is morgan riley he's doing what i expect him to do but to be clear what that is is playing top pair minutes and winning them quite handily. And even if I say mostly that's because he plays with tremendous forwards, as you've said, I think he's a good fit. When it goes to three-on-three overtime, there's no doubt who the first defenseman you put out is. It's Morgan Riley. And quarterbacking a power play is a skill that I tend to be cautious about, but he's very, very good at it. I think he is a plus power play defenseman, which is not that common. And so, warts and all... I do have to say, I think that Morgan Riley makes this team better. And I think schemes where you get rid of him have to acknowledge in and of itself that makes the team worse. He is a loss. (laughs) Now, we talked about a potential Morgan Riley trade a few episodes back. And I think we tried to to thread the needle there to say this could be something to do with an eye on the future because... The next Morgan Riley contract, I think, is going to reflect his point totals, which are going to be high. And I don't know that I want it. But in terms of what he's done this year, he is delivering on what he is supposed to do. Even though he will occasionally make decisions in the defensive zone where you're like, Morgan, you are better than this. And then you'll think, oh, no, you're not. But on the whole, he'll have his ups, he'll have his downs, and he'll come out as an effective defenseman. So, yeah, uh, B might be ungenerous, and it may just reflect, I kind of know what I expect out of Morgan Riley now, and this is it. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. No, I, I think it's fair. I just I wanted to point out that that interaction with how he meshes with Matthews and Marner specifically, and how that kind of results in a, a, in a group of players that generates a lot of great chances um, to, to a degree even higher than their already good shot numbers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to point out that kind of relationship because I think uh, that's an example of a way that Keith has changed this team in, in a very positive sense. I think um, 
that system really fits well with Riley and with those star players, and he's using them a lot. Yes, I think that's a good observation, because I think that there was frustration about Morgan Riley for a few weeks there when he was having a bit <laughs> of a rough run, and uh, yeah. yeah, we all saw it. So TJ Brody, his partner, uh, I gave him a B plus. He might be the best stick-on-puck defender I've ever seen in a Leafs uniform. It's striking how much that's the biggest asset in this game is just his stick is in the right place. So the forwards can't make a pass on what would be a very dangerous rush or he pokes it away from them, but just that's it. He's a great stick checking defender to an extraordinary degree at the NHL level. He's kind of fine at everything else, but that, that skill set is like striking to me how good he is at it. So yeah, Yeah, I gave him an an A minus, Mm -hmm. um, Similar idea, essentially, that, you know, he's he's really stabilized that pairing. Yeah. With with Riley, you know, we've said for years that Riley's needed a, a capable partner. He has mm-hmm. it. And they're they're delivering on what they what they do, what they what they promise to do. Uh he's rescued us from entirely too many uh two on ones in a way that makes me <laughs> a little nervous at times. It's like, well, that's great, but why are we um why are we <laughs> giving up all of these two-on-ones, but, you know, that's that's the price you pay when you have someone like Riley and you empower him. And I think, uh, you know, it, it nets out positively for the Leafs, and especially when you have someone like Brody there, uh, you know, you, you can take those risks and be a little more assured than when you have Ron Hainsey. Yeah, exactly. If you want to, uh, you know, we talked about Cal Dubas's biggest mistake, probably, which, which was how the Kadri trade has turned out, even if there were arguments for it at the time. TJ Brody looks like one of his great successes. He's been exactly what we wanted. He has made that pairing good. I think Riley and Brody can be the top pairing on a team that wins the Stanley Cup. I don't know if this team is going to do it. I'm I'm up and down on the Leafs as a contender, but I do think that they can deliver. And I think that they have. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Uh, Jake Muzzin should be easy because I give him a B again, which is not that I only think he's like a B-level player. It's just, he's been Jake Muzzin. And... Yeah, he's, yeah. he's been as good as ever. Yeah, he's, he's um, a very good defensive defenseman. Yeah, the, he had a r- bit of a rough game yesterday, I thought. Mm. Um, the one thing I wonder, is, is his foot speed isn't tremendous, and against teams with elite offensive forwards and fast offensive forwards like um, Winnipeg with Ehlers and... Um, Edmonton, of course, with McDavid and Dreisaitl. I wonder if he's a little bit less effective than we would naively expect, but that's just a kind of passing thought. It's not something I've looked into in any great detail. And, you know, I mean, Muzzin, he's succeeded at the highest level before. He has he has cup, he has a cup ring. Um, so I'm not too worried about him, big picture. Maybe I'm too forgiving, but that one goal last night where McDavid just outraced Hall and then threw it uh, Royal Road, to Dreisaitl, who wired it past Campbell for a goal. I was just sort of like, well, it's McDavid and Dreisaitl. Yeah, (laughs) it's absolutely true. Sometimes you have to just give credit to the other team. You know, McDavid and Dreisaitl can do stuff like that. Um, And it seemed very clear that Muzzin was just so worried about McDavid burning Hall. that Even though Hall hadn't actually had McDavid in a not-that-dangerous spot, you know, uh, Muzzin was still just really focused on McDavid, perhaps to his detriment, because he didn't notice the other Hart Trophy winner coming down the other wing. Yeah, exactly. But, like, this is the thing. And, and, Sorry, go ahead. 
No, but yeah, I think that's what you're going to say. Sometimes that's what the Oilers do. That's their that's their value prop as a team. It's like, you know, well, sometimes they just take undangerous situations and because they have McDavid and Drysaddle, they turn them into very dangerous situations. Yeah, you know, the way that we approach the game a lot of times in hockey, I think the way that almost everyone is trained to approach the game is if a goal happens, somebody made a mistake. And there's an element of truth in that to some extent. But that one, it was like, okay... Justin Hall basically kept McDavid to the outside. He didn't let him cut in uh, past him, which is no mean feat because McDavid got some pace going. And then McDavid threw a pass from a not-that-dangerous position to Dracidal coming in high. I'm not saying that they couldn't have played it better, but it's like, if you hold McDavid kind of to the outside so he can't at least cut into the net... And if Dracidal is coming in and wiring it from the top of the circles, it's like a certain amount of the time that's going to happen. So, yeah. And anyway, that that's just one snapshot. But I, I think that, by and large, Jake Muzzin has delivered. Also, he flipped a puck at Matthew Kachuk, and the Calgary Flames basically imploded it as a franchise. Yeah. And so for that, actually, I should give him an A+. Plus. So <laughs> <laughs> that was hilarious. Uh, and then Justin Hall, I think we've already kind of touched on this. The discourse has gotten kind of wild on him at times. It swings back and forth to like, is he an elite shutdown player? Not really. Is he just like a guy who happens to be with Jake Muzzin? I think he's better than that. I gave him a B. Mm -hmm. I think he's a four or five defenseman who's in a good spot. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. Um, I don't have much to add on Justin Hall. Yeah, I think he's been discussed enough. He's yeah, he's just he's a rangy defenseman. He's pretty mobile. He's a good fit with Jake Muzzin. I think I think Muzzin Hall is uh, a pairing that we're gonna keep trotting out. The defense has been pretty stable. So, yep. Uh, <laughs> Travis Dermott. I've, I've like I've said my spiel on Travis Dermott four hundred times. Like, he's, he's yeah. a very good third-pair defenseman. Can he be more than that? I don't know. It'll be Seattle who finds out, I think. So. Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, good for him. I mean, he, if you want to give him credit for something, I guess, he pretty clearly outperformed Miko Lettinen for whatever mm -hmm. that's worth, and then Miko Lettinen got traded. And uh, Godspeed. Uh, Zach Bogosian. Uh, I give him a B plus. Maybe I was a little generous because I, I did not expect anything out of him. Um, but he's the epitome of the quiet defensive defenseman mm -hmm. who I just don't think about very often. And that's fine. And I did want to note the difference between him and Cody CC as much as anything is one Cody CC is more physically gifted, but also is, has probably a lower hockey IQ for lack of a better term. I think Bogosian mm -hmm. knows what to do. He just is very slow at doing yeah. it time at times but also bogosian isn't being asked to play in the top four because cal dubas finally managed to get two guys who can hold the jobs ahead of him so that's made him look better yep uh, i i agree with that completely yeah so yeah <laughs> the defense is obviously a lot more set than the forwards which is also reflected in the fact that sheldon keefe has basically not changed his defense lineup very much so yeah uh goaltenders this is fun oh yeah <laughs> Our favorites. Um, okay, so I gave Freddie Anderson a C minus. Yeah, I gave him a C. I, 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 you could do C minus. You could do D plus. Mm -hmm. he, he just hasn't been good enough, right? And it is at times very convenient to blame the goalie yeah. because it lets you pretend the other eighteen skaters, you know, were fine. And it, it you know, 
it's similar to blaming the coach. You can much, it's much more easy to, you know, say, oh, the goalie's the problem than, oh, you know, the goalie is a problem and the team also, you know, is not perfect and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. But, you know, in, in this case, it's, it, there's certainly elements of truth to it. Anderson has been rather poor for some time now. Yeah. And I think that this is another element of something that we talked about before, which is that if you are overly engaged in online discussions of the Toronto Maple Leafs, as we sometimes are, the people who hate Freddie Anderson are nuts about him because they blame him for the Leafs losing in the first round. He is tied up with a lot of emotional upset. And so the discourse about him is venomous at this point. Like they seem like they hate him personally mm. uh, to an extent that I think is kind of nuts. And sometimes they will blame him for goals against that are straight up not realistically savable except by luck. Like, I, w I would see him getting tagged for impossible deflections. And at some point, you have to be like, okay, he can't save everything. But he has not saved uh, enough of the high danger chances coming against. And, you know, they're high danger. They're not 100% goals. Like, you have to get a certain percentage of them to be a good NHL goalie. He hasn't done it. And... Mm -hmm. Even if I think he's a little better than his raw save percentage makes him look, that's not good enough to be a starter. And that's it. So I, I don't know if it's a nagging injury or if he's just getting old or whatever it is. He's got to play better. Um, or if he doesn't, then he's going to lose his job. Yep. And he'll lose it to uh, the last player on the list, Jack Campbell. Yeah. Uh, I gave him an A-. minus. Um, I'll be honest. I knocked him down from an A to an A-. minus. Uh, based on last night, where I didn't think he was that great. In my defense, he went from five games played to six games played, so that's actually a real increase in his sample size this season. Um, he's had some not great moments. On net, he's been a really good player. I like You could also just say he's an A+, because he started as a 1B backup, and he's going to take the starting job, and he's been good. Yeah. Uh, we always kind of punt on goalies to some extent, because yeah. it's just, okay, well... Is he stopping pucks or is he not stopping pucks? Right now he's stopping pucks for the most part. Um, you know, there's still a lot of open questions about Campbell's ability to be a, a true number one. And um, those won't be answered by anything other than time. Yeah, we're going to see. He had uh, a couple of puck handling misadventures against Ottawa on Thursday where he, he tried to play it and it was perhaps defensible for him to try. And then he failed miserably and they ended up hmm. in the back of the net twice. But then he was really good the rest of the time. I, you know, I, I don't think you can get around the fact that Freddie Anderson's goaltending cost the Leafs games, and Jack Campbell has won games for them. And that's <laughs> simplistic, but that's how it is. Yep. Uh, and do you want to finish up with Sheldon Keefe? Yeah, so I guess how, how would we grade Sheldon Keefe? And I guess this is really a grade for the coaching staff as a whole, and we're just kind of attributing it to Keefe because we don't know precisely how this stuff gets divvied up mm -hmm. um, beyond some obvious things. I, I would give Keefe like a B plus. Yeah. The, the team is good, mm -hmm. right? Are they good enough to be a, a real cup contender? I feel like that's actually impossible to say. It depends entirely on your prior because <laughs> we have literally zero data about how this team matches up to any other any other team besides the six in our division. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's some things that I do like. I, I think, you know, the top line is humming. He's found a system that works for the Leafs' most important player. Mm -hmm. And their most important defenseman. That matters. That's a big thing. Um, the 
kind of line blender stuff, I don't love, I prefer consistency, but you know, there's, there's arguments for and against. I'm not going to ding him too much for that. Uh, really the only big thing I'd like to see them change is I'd like to reallocate a bit of Matthews and Marner's minutes to Tavares and Nylander. And that's mostly because, one, I think Tavares and Nylander are, are not so much worth, there isn't a huge step down here, and I want to preserve Matthews and Marner, even though they're young 20-somethings. You know, playing hockey, playing NHL hockey at that intensity for that long of a time, uh, it's tough. It's tough on the body. There's more chances of injury. Uh, I, I think I, I'd like to see him trust Tavares and Nylander more because they're deserving of that trust, and it can help Matthews and Marner in the long run too, I think. Yeah, I think that that's fair. With regard to the line blender mad scientist stuff, I go back and forth on this because I find myself saying, okay, these lines look a bit weird to me. Why are we playing Alex Kerfoot at the fourth line center, for example? And then, you know, he changes them pretty rapidly anyway. And I kind of swing <laughs> between, okay, well, it's the regular season. The team on the whole is done pretty well. This is the time to find out if you can have something. And the best example of him trying something that maybe intuitively didn't seem like it would work, but has had some good showings, is the hemline, Hyman engvall Mikheyev, which I don't think too many people anticipated would get results. I sure as hell didn't. And No, I definitely didn't as well. Yeah, and, and so if you want to give credit where it's due, it's that through this process where he keeps trying things, he will sometimes come upon something that works. That is better than expected. And so he'll know his roster presumably better come playoff time, which is good. Sometimes you also have to say, okay, this is maybe a bit silly. And there is probably some value in terms of consistency, familiarity with different players that maybe we are missing out on a little bit. Now he is serving a lot of purposes with these lines. I think that there is a very definite thing with Joe Thornton going on where they want to give Joe Thornton first line minutes on a spiritual level. Like they want him to see his name at the top of the lineup card. They want him to get time with Matthews and Marner because that's partly why he came to Toronto to play with great players. And at the same time, they kind of know when things get tough, it probably ought to be Zach Hyman there. And so we mm -hmm. keep seeing these lines that start one way and end the game another. And I understand that he is serving multiple purposes there. I, I hope that by the time we, again, get to the playoffs when it really counts, he is running an optimized lineup. And I was disconcerted by the decision to go for a superpower line against Columbus in Game 5 last year. Tavares, Matthews, Marner. I thought that that was a mistake. And so... We'll see how it plays out going forward. I can't hold what I fear he might do against the play in the playoffs against him now. So I'll come back around to saying I give him a B because I think that the team is doing what it's expected to do. They're the best team in the North, and that's about right. Yep, that sounds good. All right, sweet. Um, so is there anything else you wanted to discuss this no, week? No, I'm good. Awesome. So thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, you can find all of mine food and work at pentatpanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RB and Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.